0: Hello, there's some swearing in this episode. If you would prefer a beeped version, you can find one on our website. Hello, and welcome to the How To Academy podcast. My guest on this episode, Francesco Dimitri, is an Italian-born, London-based author and screenwriter who, following an accomplished career in his native language, now writes primarily in English. His new novel, Never the Wind, is a magical realist fable about family, belonging and coming of age set in his native Puglia and will appeal hugely to fans of Susanna Clarke, Elena Ferrante, and Neil Gaiman. It's out now. Francesco spoke to me about the differences between life in Italy and the UK and his lifelong fascination with wonder and enchantment. Francesco, you're an Italian who moved to London without speaking English, who in just a few short years began writing literary novels and non-fiction in English. How did you manage this feat? What motivated you to move here and transition to a new language? So what motivates me is,
1: is a difficult question to answer because I think I was just mostly bored with Rome. I used to live in Rome with my then girlfriend and we said, let's try something new. We came to London for a few months. we liked it, and I decided to try and learn English to a level that I could start a new career in English. So that, my motivation was pretty vague, I may say. But how did I manage it? Well, a lot of patience. I've been talking to people. I, I, I like people very much. So it's never an effort to me to, to just hang out at pubs, at places and just chat with people, reading books. But more importantly, what I did was try and make English a language of the soul somehow. So try and make it emotionally relevant to me. I built profound friendships in English. I started keeping my journal in English. So they would become an emotional language rather than just something I used in order to get by
0: And do you think in English now, as well as write in English? I do.
1: I do. I think in English, I think in Italian, I think in a strange Pigeon language, which is neither here nor there. I think in my own dialect, which is different from Italian. So I think in all sorts of different languages, which is probably one of the reasons why my thoughts are so muddled and often
0: confused. How does the Italian literary world compare to the Anglophone one? They are different, for better or worse.
1: Uh, the Italian literary world, I would say, is much more snobbish. So every book, most books, really, not every book, is kind of an object of beauty in Italy, a bit like in France, you know, there's a lot of attention to, to production values. It's much more highbrow, even for commercial fiction, in many ways. But I think the English literary world is far more interesting, to be honest, because there is a lot of variety, much more variety than we have in, uh, in Italy. Much more risks are taken. It's a more professional world. Again, for better or worse, because sometimes it becomes too professionalized. You know, and there's, there's not enough space for, for pure art. But on average, I would say it is, it is more interesting. More interesting things are produced and they are better produced on average in the English market, in the English industry.
0: You've written two books set in southern Italy so far, or I should say you've written two books in English set in southern Italy, both of which can be read independently, though they're set in the same fictitious town. Will you tell us a bit about your upbringing in Puglia and how it differs from the Roman culture uh, that many of us will be more familiar with?
1: Okay, it was wild, Uh, really, really wild. The closest I've seen is stories about growing rural Ireland in the 80s or even the 70s. So I grew up in a place in which some people uh, still didn't have electricity at all. I had a guy in my, in my class at school. They didn't have electrics in that place. So that's, that's the culture in which I grew up with. I grew up in a place in which you knew who the mafia families were, you respected them, they didn't bother you by and large, you didn't bother them, and there was kind of a mutual understanding, so to speak. I grew up in a place in which, you know, quite brutal fights, would just start at the drop of a pin, just because, you know, just because or wrong look, or just because someone was looking for a fight. Uh, there were guys, especially young men, as you can probably imagine, but not only young men, young women as well, who, as a hobby, would go out looking for fight. Shamo cerca in local dialect, which means "let's go look for a fight." So that's 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 the context. And I was a bookish guy. Yeah, you know? I liked books. I liked comics. So I was saved by the fact that I liked people. So I had all sorts of friends. So kind of my social skill kind of saved my life. But I wasn't big, as as you know of us. I wasn't big, I was bookish, and I was growing in quite a wild place. It was also quite beautiful as well, because uh, you were growing up in a place in which you have a vague understanding that law and order existed. But by and large, you were kind of living by local rules, which made... For a very free lifestyle, with a lot of problems but there was also a lot of freedom and they grew up enjoying that freedom very much. When I first moved to Rome when I was 18, I was shocked by how how contrived and how prisoner I felt in, in, in a city life. I, and I mean, this is Rome, this is a city that's considered wild by most Europeans but I felt as if I were in a prison I, fe- I felt as if all of a sudden, there, I was, there were rules around me, there were rules controlling me, there were eyes controlling me, so on and so forth. So the sense of freedom was absolutely vital to my upbringing. The sense of joyous anarchy was absolutely vital to my upbringing. But then again, of course, there were a darker side. I've been talking about the darker side of, of mafia and criminality, but also sexism. It was a place that was... That's, it's not like that anymore. It is kind of changing. There was a place that was sexist beyond what we can possibly believe today. In traditional families, all men of the family would be served first. So if you were a 12-year-old guy, you would still be served before any woman at the table. And that was completely normal. In many families, not in mine, but in many traditional families, that was completely normal. And there's still, I mean, increasingly less, but that's still the case in, in very traditional families. So it's, it was a strange kind of upbringing that made you uh, free, that gave you a, 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 a sense of joyous anarchy, as I said. At the same time, though, it didn't really make you ready for the world out there. So when you hit 18 and you start moving to large cities, as a lot of people in my generation did, my age did, you need to learn how to live all over again, which I suppose it's always the case, but for our generation, for our age bracket, probably more so than average.
0: How have your fellow Italians reacted to your books in translation back into Italian? Do you get any pushback for being too hard in your portrayal of the violence and misogyny and corruption of Southern Italian culture? Sometimes, but not very much,
1: because most Italians, uh, again, most Italians, my my generation, our generation, are... kind of aware of the problems we have. There is a growing awareness in Italy. It's quite interesting these days, Italy culturally, because there is a growing awareness of our heritage and of the problems we we inherited from the past and even from recent political political adventures, so to speak. So there is an awareness of that. Uh, Sometimes there is a pushback that I make things too vivid. They say they make things a bit too vivid. But I disagree with that. I think it is quite a vivid corner of the world. And my, my, I, the way I look at the world is quite vivid anyway. So if I were writing books set in London, they would be as vivid as these ones are.
0: Neither of your novels set in Puglia are straightforward literary novels. There's an undercurrent of magic and the supernatural present as well, and it's one that most of the characters are completely oblivious to. Uh, Why do you bring the fantastical into this setting? What are you hoping the reader will take from the infusion of weirdness? Okay, there are
1: two answers to this. Uh, The first is that I consider myself a realistic writer, a completely realistic writer. I just happen to see the world strangely. I think that an experience of something transcendent is as old an experience as we have. Humans have been experiencing something else, something that goes beyond flesh and bones since prehistory, really. It's a, a, a fundamental emotion, this understanding, this feeling of something wonderful, or something awful as well. It's as old as love and hatred are. Now, I'm not saying necessarily that this feeling means there is something else. I'm not. That's not my promise to say. No, yeah. It would be a very arrogant thing to say. But definitely the feeling is there. And it is a feeling I'm interested in. If you think about it, it is not strange to write entire novels about love. Writing love stories. It's completely normal. Writing stories about friendship, which is always important in my books as well. It's completely normal. Uh, I write about the emotion that we feel when we face something strange. The way... Other authors write about love. So for me, that's, that's, that's the feeling, that's the thing that, that, that fuels it. This notion that, that we have a striving for something else and something more. When it comes to the difference between you know, genre fiction, fantasy fiction, literary fiction, I think it's complete bullshit. I think it is something that bad writers uh, use as a shield to hide the mediocrity of their writing. Now, my writing may be mediocre as well. I'm not saying it isn't. But at least I don't use any shields. Stories are stories. Some stories are about middle-aged professors having affairs. And some of those stories are great. So I'm not, you know, I'm not putting them down. There are some great stories about middle-aged professors having affairs. Some stories are about dragons. I don't write about dragons. But hey, some people write about dragons. They love dragons and they may very well work out in a story. It's all about what kind of truths we are trying to articulate about our understanding of the world. That's what a good story is about. As long as the story is honest, whether it features university professors or dragons, or anywhere in between, the story will work out. The only stories that don't work out for me, the only stories I find find, uh, boring, are stories which are not honest, are stories that are somehow lying to me as a reader
0: Do you worry that readers of literary fiction will be turned away by the magical aspect or inversely that readers of fantasy will be turned away by all the emotional realism in these books? Yeah, they, I don't worry I know it happens
1: uh, Plenty of readers of literary fiction who uh, would approach my books don't, because there is a magic aspect to it and pl- plenty of fantasy readers who could approach my books don't because they think it's going to be too literary for them. But I must say with some pride that both kind of readers, when they do read my books, when they do approach my books, they do find something for them. Uh, just last week I received an email from a dear friend of mine who works in Penguin. She's as literary a reader as, as possibly get. She was say, I read your last novel in a day. I just started it. And then I couldn't stop, and it really gave me something, and thank you for writing it. Thank you for bringing your vision to the world, something like that. So I, it was a very kind and gentle email to send, coming from someone who couldn't care less about fantasy. I think we need to bust those bubbles. As long as we think that what... I mean, look, if you read Lord of the Rings when you were 12 or 14, and you loved it, as I did, I read it when I was 10, I absolutely loved it, you can say, okay, I like stories about elves and spend the rest of your life looking for elves. But you may say, also say, I like something in this book which is not necessarily about elves. And may, you may want to try and find the same things in books about you know train drivers or or doctors or, or, or even elves or even elves. But it is about uh, what kind of pleasures you are pursuing. And I think it's very simplistic. To believe that we are piercing pleasures that have to do with specific features of the story, we are piercing pleasures that have to do with what the story is telling us, with what the story is, with the kind of worlds the story is drawing us to. So yes, I I know it is a risky way of writing, but nothing interesting was ever written chasing readers. I think a, a honest writer shouldn't chase readers. A honest writer should try and write something the readers may enjoy. I believe in the enjoyment of literature, so I don't write for myself. But at the same time, uh, it should always be something slightly, slightly brave and slightly new.
0: Otherwise, there is no point in killing trees for printing it. You've written extensively elsewhere on the concept of wonder, not only that feeling produced by stories that are in the science fiction and fantasy space, but also other ways of engaging with the world that evoke a sense of wonder. Why does a sense of wonder matter to you? Because it is what keeps us alive. Uh, There is a saying that
1: survival is not enough. As human beings living in in the Western world today, survival is kind of guaranteed, until it isn't, because we, we are going to die at any moment, and... And too early anyway. I mean, up to the moment, I mean, it's kind of guaranteed. But the point is, what do we do with our life? What is that we want to do with our days on Earth? When I say what do we do with our life, I don't necessarily mean you know, changing the world, writing a masterwork, no, not necessarily stuff like that. But how are we going to build meaning in our daily life, in our daily actions? Because if all of our life is about going to work, making some money, you know, paying our mortgage if we're lucky enough to have a mortgage, or paying rent, or whatever that is, have children and die, then we may as well just, you know, save time and kill us all right now. There's no point in in having a life like that. I mean, you may as well kill yourself. So the point is, what do we live for? And there is no one answer. Each of us need to negotiate that answer. Many times in a lifetime, it's not even an answer that you find at some point. Maybe if you're lucky, you you, you become a a hermit or a monk. You find your answer when you're 25 and you live the rest of your life with the answer. Most of us, we need to renegotiate the answer over and over and over again. And in order to do that, we need to be profoundly engaged with the world. And if we want to be profoundly engaged with the world, we need to keep wondering at it. We need to keep the sense of wonder that we have as children alive when we became grown-ups a lot of fantasy books are completely devoid of any sense of wonder. Magic is treated as if it were, you know, just, just a form of pseudoscience, and, and then you have, you know, magicians fucking each other, bonking each other, stra- witches and vampires sleeping together, and it's the end of the book. And it's a perfectly mm, honest way of writing fiction. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not knocking it out. I'm not particularly interested in it, because there is no wonder in that. And then you read some realistic fiction. You read Stoner, by, by Williams, and and you have in the fiction a lot of wonder at the human condition, at how strange it is that we are alive to begin with. Yeah. That kind of feeling is a feeling which I think good art, uh, not necessarily capital A art, but good art, should help us keep alive.
0: How do you square the importance of wonder with? the responsibilities that we face as adults in the terrible world that we live in? It's really hard,
1: but it is possible. Uh, Not for a moment, I say that we should fight the inner child. You know, your inner child is a bastard. The children are heartless, selfish, cruel... Um, James Matthew in and Peter Pan say the children are heartless. He finished the book saying the children are heartless and cruel. And I completely agree with him. So uh, as adults, we can't afford to be children. We need to be adults. It's amazing. Being adults is absolutely amazing. But we need to keep the sense that new things are coming our way all the time. A lot of professional training we receive in our, in our workplace is about teaching us how to focus on a specific small set of problems, ignoring everything else. A good specialist will know their problem, they will focus on their problem, and they will ignore anything else because other people will take care of that. Again, I think it's a terrible way to do it. It's a terrible way to, to spend our life. If we keep ourselves curious enough, we realize that new things are happening to us all time, all day, every day. And of course we can't chase every new thing happening to us, like we can't chase butterflies as grown-ups, because as you say, we have responsibilities, we have jobs, we have children, we have mortgages, and that's an amazing part of being alive. But we need to cut a space for the newness to happen, while uh, what we do most of the times is just ignoring it because we are too tired, because we are too lazy, because uh, we have more important things to consider at the moment. We need to make our, our striving for wonder important in our life. We need to make a point of honor, so to speak, to make it important. And once we do that, suddenly we see that there is a lot of space, there is always a lot of space, for newness, curiosity, and strange new things to happen to us. Well, all we're doing is not ignoring them when they come our way. So it is possible. It's not easy. Uh, 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 an example I like to make is stage magic. Okay, if you go to a show by a good magician, you know, probably, hopefully so, you know that this magician has no powers whatsoever. You know, it's all smoke and mirrors. Literally, they, they invented smoke, smoke and mirrors this way. But even with the knowledge, when the magician does something astounding on, on stage or in the street, if, he's, if they are good street magicians, you are feeling what? You have a moment in which you go, whoa. You have a moment in which you say, but that's impossible. And of course you know it's not impossible because it's happening, so it must be possible. But you are shutting off the part of your brain for a moment. It's an incredibly healthy thing to do. It's not against science. It doesn't fly against science. quite the contrary. It's the moment in which uh, scientific endeavors begin because we start being curious again. If we can do that with magicians then we can do that with the rest of our lives. I wrote an entire book about it, so I think it's possible to to do it.
0: The second of your Puglia novels in English, Never the Wind, has just come out. At the start of the story, the hero Luca is adjusting to life in a new town and he's adjusting to blindness. Why did you choose to make Luca blind? Because we take
1: our senses for granted. It was a difficult thing to write because he wanted to write a book. I mean, we wanted to write a book from the point of view of a blind person for 12, 10 to 12 years now, so it, it was a long time. I wanted to do it in a way that honoured the experience of blindness. So it's very easy when you're writing about experiences you don't have to make those experiences into a cipher for yourself. You know, you write a book with a blind character as a metaphor for all the things you don't see in life. You know, And I think that's absolutely cruel, because you're taking other people and using them you know, as a metaphor for yourself. They're doing that a lot with all those terrible books about lagers today, There's an entire sub-genre about the Shoah, in which the Shoah has almost become a genre like Western or science fiction, and now you have Shoah books. I think it's absolutely callous to to take the tragic experience of human beings and make it about yourself somehow. So I wanted the book to be about the experience of being blind, very much about the experience of being blind. But I wanted to explore this experience in a way that would teach me to begin with, and maybe show my readers as well, something about the world in which we live, we are a society that's obsessed with sight. Uh, a blind activist, uh, Bob Rower, who wrote a fantastic book about the experience of blindness, said that uh, the problem of blind people is not that they are disabled, it's that they live in a world that makes them disabled. Because they live in a world in which everything is revolves around sight. But it is also a world in which we miss a lot of pleasures. Because we are so obsessed with our we, we, with site that uh, it happens in London a lot. They serve you these amazing plates and the food in them is really, really very average. But they are visually nice. They are very Instagrammable. Yeah? And, and you pay for them as if they were actual food. But they're not. The, the quality of food is absolutely garbage in, in many cases. But they are serving your sight. And I love sight. I'm very grateful they have sight. I'm interested also in kind of experiences that we can have through other senses. Some people see ghosts, but some people just smell something funny, something strange. And they can be every bit as scary, I think, or even scarier than actually seeing a ghost.
0: Given that, as you said, you're sighted, how did you go about ensuring that your depiction of Luca, uh, which is first person, was an accurate depiction of sight loss and not replete with ableist tropes? Empathy. First, I tried. I'm
1: not saying I managed. i want to be very clear on this. But I tried hard. And blind people read the book Say that I was capturing that experience very well. I captured the experience well. So I'm, I'm proud of that. Uh, empathy. I read... Tons of memoirs written by blind people. I listened to podcasts, I watched YouTube videos, and I interviewed uh, people that went to sight loss. I interviewed them about their experience, about their daily life. I interviewed them while I was writing the book. So, while I was facing problems, while I was finding problems, so to speak, I had some people that very kindly accepted to talk to me and give me their side of the experience. It was mostly a work on listening. Um, I strongly believe the writers should be listeners to begin with. This is an extreme case. Even if you're writing a book about uh, a southern block aged forty-one with no hay, so exactly me. Even if you're writing that kind of book, you still need to listen a lot before you start. You start writing. So it was an exercise in empathy, basically. I didn't do stuff like, you know, all my friends were saying, are you going to go around your house with, with a blindfold over your eyes? I didn't do that kind of stuff because it wouldn't make any sense at all. I know I can take off my blindfold at any time. So it wouldn't give me uh, a sense of what the experience is of actually losing your sight.
0: On the subject of listening, uh, a previous book of yours, To Read Aloud, advocates for the power and importance of oral storytelling, even going as far as to suggest that reading prose to another person is a form of self-help for both of you. Will you tell us a little bit about that philosophy? Do you want your own stories to be read aloud around a campfire? Absolutely. All my novels are written uh, with an eye,
1: sorry for the pun, to reading them aloud. If you try and read aloud, especially the last one, if you try and read, it and read it aloud, it should roll roll down your tongue very, very easily. That's that's the attempt I make, so there is a huge attention to that. Reading aloud to grown-ups has always been a key pleasure in life. It's only very recently, and when I say recently, I mean uh, the early 20th century, so a, a century ago or so. That we have lost the kind of pleasure that we started believing that reading aloud is mostly something you do to children, to put them to sleep. It would be completely normal until the 20th century to read to friends, to lovers, even to factory workers. There were factories that would have readers reading to the workers while they're working in factory. It was completely normal to read stories aloud, and when you do that, you are creating a strange sympathetic, incredibly intimate bonding with another person. When I was launching that launching the book, we made a few events um, in which we would have perfect strangers sit together and read out pieces of literature to each other. It was incredible to see how quickly they were bonding. It's like speed dating, you know, but only words. And it's not necessarily about dating It's something you, know? you may also end up just with friends, not necessarily with a date. But if it is to a date, who I might say, no, just to Italian, to... To, to say no to that, but he, you were creating an immediate bond because on the one hand, you were sharing a physical space, you were breathing in and the words that the other person was saying. You were, you, know, you were kind of touching with words each other's body, which feels really icky, but it's not icky because it's only words. On the other hand, you had someone else, the writer, articulate thoughts that you may want to share. So you had you had a conversational start. You had something that could help you start a conversation, which happened regularly. If the piece of writing is well chosen, people will automatically and quite and quite naturally start conversation about the piece. The piece doesn't need, needs to be not too long because we're not used to reading aloud anymore, so five, six, seven minutes, stop. That's the longest we, we, we take. Piece needs to be well chosen, because it needs to be something that sounds nicely when read aloud. But apart from that, any
0: piece will work. To finish up, I want to ask you the same question that I asked Ken Liao, another speculative novelist, a couple of weeks ago. Uh, once listeners are finished with Never the Wind, who would you recommend they read next? David Mitchell.
1: My answer is always David Mitchell. I think he's one of our greatest novelists. I mean, I, I, I'm not saying anything new. I'd, I'd love to say something absolutely original, you know, and there's plenty of smaller writers who I like almost as much as David Mitchell. But I think he's building something truly unique. He's building a work, a corpus, which is uh, realistic, but also strange and weird, very humane, but also metaphysical, uh, historically grounded, but also wacky and strange. And I honestly think he's one of the writers that 100 years from now, people will still be, be reading. And if you like my stuff, you're going to absolutely love David Mitchell.
0: And uh, readers who already know David Mitchell, you're going to love Francesco's books as well. Francesco, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast.
1: Thank you, Us. It was a pleasure and it was quite fun. Thank you.
0: This week's podcast starred Francesco Dimitri and was produced and presented by me, Vas Christodoulou. The editor is John Doughty, and the series is co produced by me and Dana Outcult. Francesco's new novel, Never the Wind, is out now from Titan, and we also spoke about his books To Read Aloud and That Sense of Wonder. Until next time, thanks for listening.